Hello, and welcome to the richardbarnes.com podcast. The emphasis of the podcast is to show, through others' experiences and insight, a beacon of knowledge, perspective, wit, and warning. A tale of life's lessons in whatever field. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at richard at richardbarnes.com. Okay, it's time to podcast. It's been a traumatic number of months for you, Mr. Pillage. Um, from messing about, coughing and whatever else, and thinking you had a back problem mm-hmm. or a disc out of place, and seeing physiotherapists and then being told it's another two discs out of place, and then going back to the physiotherapist again and wrapping you up in nice blue tape like footballers have, and then getting a cold and having a bad cough and then going to see the doctors because it was hurting more than you thought it should. Um, to the point where they discovered, uh, uh, what was his name again? Bob. Discovering Bob, growing quite nicely next to the heart on top of the lung, to the point of you um, having open heart surgery. Yeah, it has been a, a, an interesting journey, to say the least. We'll go back to the beginning then, you know, because I, I, we played squash a few times over last year, um, and I think in all the games um, that we played, um, I, I, you know, was convincing really maybe two of them, and I don't think you were on the court for most of those two games. But it, you had a couple of episodes, didn't you? Um, but where your energy level, you said, just dropped, and you thought you were hyperglycemic. Mm-hmm. You just, you just had no energy for from moving around. Now I put it down to the fact that actually I was getting better and making you run around a bit more, you know, but. It wasn't, so you disappear off, get yourself a cake and sit down for a minute, and then your energy level will come back up, which, you know, at the, with the benefit of hindsight, what was actually happening is, because you were being more physically challenged by my improved squash, yeah. that your heart was not getting the um, blood pumping around your system, and your system was not getting the oxygen from the heart, which is why you were feeling dodgy, and you thought it was energy level that was got gone down i.e. sugars and it wasn't it was oxygen mm-hmm. so it went from that then into into Mr Quacks and did Mr Quacks make you worry about it being something more sinister than my improving game of squash uh, um, I think I think what sort of threw me Richard was the fact that um, back in June I'd had a car accident um, we were on a, a trip to go and see the accountant and we, we were still on around a woman hit us um, square in the side but I was picking something off the floor of Sarah's car so I was twisted when the actual accident occurred so I put down the, the back pain and more importantly the chest pain down to where the, is exactly where the seatbelt would have been so that twisting um, was like a referred pain from my back as my physio said um, she did a great job on my back to be fair which, which is actually helped me quite a lot with the recovery now where I've been lying around quite a lot. But there has been a, a series of, of quite interesting coincidences and oddnesses that have taken me to actually get to the, um, to the, uh, the, to the doctors. Uh-huh. So, so with, the, um, with the flu that I had, um, it, it, a cough just um, wouldn't go away. Now... We do have a propensity for cancer in, in, in my family. So, you know, being a smoker, there's always that worry in the back of your mind, of course. 
But yeah, because he did smoke a bit, didn't he? Yeah, uh, but it's amazing. The second that I found something was wrong, he just stopped. You know, and and uh, it's which I thought actually for world. you was quite quite a remarkable thing because you know, joking aside, I've never seen anybody consume a cigarette with a, such malice <laughs> as you did when when you wanted one. No, it's, it's, it's very true. I mean, it's um, I, I, I honestly enjoy smoking. What's interesting now, I went out for a walk with a friend of mine who, who had a cigarette, uh, and this was actually out in the um, in the street, and we were just for a little stroll, and the smell of that cigarette actually made me want to be sick. Incredible. But when I went, the doctors, fair play to them, found there was a crackle in my lung. Now, they, they turned around and said, yeah, well, eight to ten days you'll get a result back. We think it's probably best if you go and have an X-ray. Uh, the lady in the x-ray department said eight to ten days that was on the Tuesday on the Thursday I came back from um, teaching and I'd had three missed calls from the doctors which was one of the most frightening things ever because you know, they're not going to phone up three times a day and say oh everything's absolutely yeah, that's clear crazy. you normally can't get a bloody appointment can you exactly let alone you know then getting to phone yeah, yeah so then we missed a couple of phone calls in the, the Friday morning so about 11 o'clock and he said look there is there is an anomaly that we've seen that's the word they used yeah Anomaly. And, and scary in itself, really, isn't it? Eh? But it is. But as, as it transpires, there was nothing wrong with the lungs at all. Mm. But the anomaly was actually showing through the lungs yeah. because it was so big. Now, as, as it transpires, the tumour itself... Was, so that was off, off an X-ray? Yeah. So it's being shown through the actual... Because X-rays normally pick up bones or whatever else, yeah. or large objects. Yeah. And there it was. And it was... Uh, they couldn't see it very well, so then I went and had CAT scans and PET scans and various other ones, and it transpires that the actual tumour, or as we call it, Bob, um, was the size of a grapefruit. And so, it had been growing there for, we don't know, it could have been years, it could have been a matter of months, because you know, at this moment in time we're still waiting for the histology to come back as to what the tumour was. So when did the, the did you have a quintessential oh shit moment... Well, was, or was it something that built up over a period of weeks, or no? It was the, 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 or have you not the, had that moment yet? No, the oh shit moment came literally when I, 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 the worst one for me, to be fair, by a long shot, was the fact that I had three missed calls from my doctor, and that night I didn't sleep a wink, as you can imagine, because I know there is something. You know, it has to be Hercule bloody Poirot to work out there's something wrong. Um, but then, you know, with, with what has transpired uh, subsequently, you know, there, there's been a number of steps, you know, with, with the various scans and, and uh, uh, biopsies being cancelled, which was a complete fuck-up uh, from uh, the hospital's point of view. But as it transpires, they've all led me to go and see a guy um, at uh, the University College Hospital in Coventry called Mr Marzouk, who is a world leader in this sort of operation. So there was, been very public about it um, in posting mm-hmm. um, on Facebook, because, you know, you know, problem shared and there's a problem hard, I suppose, is the way you view the things. And, and being as vocal as you have been about that, as a, as a guide to other people as well. So by posting, you know, your motivation is... is, is not self-serving, but it's a self-help for yourself and a self-help for other people and sharing the signs of what you've had up until that point. I think, to be honest, Richard, it's worked on a number of different levels. 
I am a great person of social media, as we've discussed many times, yeah? And, and I enjoy the whole Facebook experience. And it's, it's been great for business, it's been great for me as a person, etc., etc., etc. However, I've always put what's sort of going on in my life with it. And I thought, I took the stand, it was only right and proper with something like this going on that it would still be a public thing for me. Now, I know a lot of people would tend to view this as something that is private. I didn't. Now, for me, with the benefit of hindsight, it was the best thing I could have done. Because not only have I had a tremendous amount of support from the British martial arts community and from overseas, an amazing amount, more than I could ever have imagined. And that that has given me great strength and great energy. Because when, when, we, when you look at it, Eight weeks ago, nine weeks ago, there was nothing wrong with me in my mind. I could have gone anywhere in the world. I could have done anything. Because it has been that quite kind of time scale, hasn't it? Eight, yeah. nine weeks. So we're talking, so beginning of November. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a bit of an achy back, didn't you? Um, October time. And you attributed, like you said, that to yeah. the bump in the car that you had. And then, you know, this is, this is turning around. So let's, let's just pick up that timeline. So I'm getting the phone calls from the doctors. Because mm-hmm. uh, for me, you've had the best of best of health experience and some of the bloody worst as well so you get the call from the doctors the doctor sends you for the x-ray they find an anomaly and then they take you up to the next level did you have the ct scan mri scans yeah what what, what should have happened was we had a letter saying be there at the endoscopy unit at 8 30 in the morning and i was told i had to have a cat scan and then the um a bronchioscopy so they go in to the lung and take out a sample so got in there at ten past eight. They're drill old, don't they? Rather uh, no, this is going through going down, down the throat. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, and I said, you know, I've come. Um, I've got an appointment at eight thirty. I believe I've got to have a cat scan. Don't worry about it. Just go and sit down. Two hours later, I'm actually wheeled in. Although I've mentioned, I think on three separate occasions, that I should have been. Um, I should have been. Um, had your CT scan. CT scan. And, and the, the, the surgeon, I was sort of, it was weird because I was expecting, I've never had anything like this before, I was going to go into a nice little room and have a cup of tea and they're just going to do this procedure. It's like a full operating theatre. Mm. Um, and they go, well, where's your CAT scan? I said, well, I haven't had one. Ah, they go, well, we can't do the procedure without it. And they stuck things in your hand and you put candles They were just it? about to. They yeah, literally yeah. were just about to. So I'd go in the following week, have that had the CAT scan, then I'm waiting to have the bronchioscopy. As it transpires, of course, they could then see from that initial scan that the tumour was not in the lung, so that wouldn't have been the right procedure. Um, so there was no biopsy being taken there. So that really would have been a waste of time. 100%. Well, yeah, because it wasn't just wasn't there. Yeah. yeah. Then, um, the following week, um, I then ended up having a, a PET scan which is basically where they feed you radioactive glucose, which will then show where the cancers are. And that was one of those oh-fuck moments, because that would have shown if there were secondaries. You know, thank God that it, it would appear there was only that one mm. particular area. But then, then this is where it sort of goes a little bit more into the realms of being particularly frightening. I, I call it the laser-guided harpoon treatment. And, and basically, there was another CAT scan booked, which has a, um, a a drilling go through either your sternum or through your ribs into the tumour takes a sample 
Now, if I've got a lymphoma, which was so we're still waiting the histology to come back, that, as it stood from the scans, my cancer was fairly well contained. So, but by prodding it and taking a sample, it could have actually released it out into my body. Now, luckily, they didn't have a bed for me, and then when they did have a bed, the consultant had gone home. So, what could have been the worst thing could have happened, didn't. We sent them to go. So that was on the Wednesday, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so remember you posted on Facebook how disappoint well, how disappointed you were that you couldn't have the scan, that you know what terrible service it was. You'd been in and out and been up and down with it, expecting to have surgery and then not have a, a, a procedure, and then you know rather than being treated, being put back another week, another week. Mm-hmm. You're now wondering, you know, are you going to get sorted or not get sorted? I think I think the problem was, Richard. You know, you could imagine th- this procedure is you are awake for. Yeah. So, I, I basically built myself up mentally that I'm going to have this thing drilling through my sternum or going into my ribs while I'm awake. That's quite scary, to be to be fair. Um, but then, you know, the, the, the they said, look, you, you you need to perhaps now go along the private route. Um, and luckily I haven't been on Bupa for years, so uh, it's time to use it. So I went to see Mr. Uh, Marzouk on the Friday. He basically said... So me Wednesday they copped up. Yeah. I think... Uh, well, they, 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 you thought they copped up, and mm-hmm. then, you know... And they, so two days later, you're thinking, right, I've got Bupa, let's see if we can use it, see, pay some money or whatever else, whatever it takes. I've been messed about enough. <laughs> let's go and see Mr. Marzouk. Who is... What I didn't realise was the University College uh, Hospital has one of the best thoracic units in the world. In the world. Not in the country, in the world. Mm. And Mr Marzouk happens to be the one who heads that up. So he is you know, a, a tremendous um, gentleman. Um, I met him on the, the, the Friday. Uh, he operated on the Monday. And then uh, he actually went off strangely for a cancer operation himself on the Tuesday. Um, and that's so a lot, a lot, a lot... <laughs> One of my favourite bits of the story that you told about going in, Mr. Marzouk said to you, uh, "Okay, yes, we need to get you in." I'm thank God they didn't do this procedure Mm -hmm. because they could have released cancer cells around your body if it had been a lymphoma, Um, and if it had been the other type, the thalmoma, I think it's called. Okay, it would be no good. It'd been been a complete waste of time. So either way, it was it would have done you in. Or been a complete waste of time. Mm-hmm. So the best scenario was it was a complete waste of time, and they've drilled a hole in your sternum. Yeah. So on the Friday you go and see him, and um, he says, "Okay, we'll get you sorted." Mm-hmm. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And um, he said to you, being booper and the private bit, um, "When would you like to have your operation?" Mm-hmm. And um, your response was. What what time are you a morning person or an afternoon <laughs> person? Do you do your best work in the morning or the afternoon? And, and are you a drinker? I said as well. Are you a drinker? Yes. <laughs> and are you getting on well with your wife? Yeah. Um, which he laughed at, you know, and that that was the measure of the man. He took it all in his stride, bless him. Um, so I, I was then in on the Monday, having uh, the operation, which was good in a way because it didn't it didn't give me that much time to sit and brood about it. In fact, you know, so when did you go in? You went in on the Sunday night? Sunday night, yeah. We'd had a great Saturday together. Yeah. We'd watched the rugby together. I then had a, a lovely day with my friend Tony Bailey uh, over in Stratford just to sort of uh, put the world to right. I sort of made my peace with myself. And so it's, it's, a, it's a serious operation. You know, it's, it's a major operation. Um, 
they took me in on Sunday night. Um, but my only, my biggest recollection of that whole process, to be honest, was the fact that um, the gentleman in the bed opposite, who'd been in there for a couple of weeks, who'd seen a lot of these operations come and go, um, who was being operated on in the morning at the same time as myself, said, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, you'll have your pre-med, your happy pill will be absolutely great, you know, you've nothing to worry about. So he had his pill, he's off with the Lambda Fairies, waving and being quite jovial, although he's about to have a triple bypass. Uh, then they come for me and I said, well, where, where's mine? Where, where's my... Uh, happy pill. Happy pill. Oh, we can't give you one, sir, with the operation that you're having. So then I had 40 minutes of thinking, I can actually escape from here, probably, and go and live on an island somewhere under an assumed name. Yeah, um, just outside of Bedworth. Because I was shitting myself. Um, yeah, I've had no experience of operations or anything like that in the past. Um, and then sort of four hours later, I'm coming round um, in the, the uh, recovery unit, and the rest, they say, is history. So uh, the, the guy that gave you the advice on the happy pill... He was fine. <laughs> really? uh, in fact, I saw him again. I mean, there was a gentleman who I'd, meant, uh, I'd spoken to briefly uh, who was not having a dissimilar operation, as I understand it, mm. who died on the, uh, on the Monday, which was uh, yeah, a very sobering thing. Very sobering indeed. Blimey. So I think you, Sarah came in, uh, was my, my first uh, visitor. I think I'd actually sent out a raw request for the Barnes to come and visit, <laughs> um, where you filled me in on some details I'd forgotten about that's, that's my next time right. over. Do you remember, so you remember, um, so you remember, you remember what, being wheeled into the theatre and then just going yeah. to sleep, yeah. and the next thing you wake up on a bed with an oxygen mask on, Basically, yeah. that's the sort of thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because yeah. um, you're, you're in ICU for a couple of days, or yeah. a day and a bit. Yeah, they, they, they should, I should have been in for three days. I, I, I cleared it in two, which I was pleased with. Having said that, again, that was a sobering experience because there were people not making it through in the ICU yes. unit, weren't they? Yeah. So, um, so at which point we get onto the ward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I must say, like I said, I did come and see you and you did look a little bit um, uncomfortable with mm-hmm. the old experience. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was a, I think the gentleman across from you as well was, yeah. was having having trouble with his bowels as well, yeah. which added to the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, but you were you were quite fortunate because you had those nasal prongs up yeah. your nose, which uh, was obviating obviating the the sulphurous nature of the <laughs> gaseous emissions. But yeah, well, I think I said my favourite bit, bit about it was the gentleman. You were in the middle bay, weren't you? But it was six bay ward. Mm-hmm. You were there's some some gentleman with the gaseous emissions. Then there was you, then there was a guy next to the window. Yeah. And the guy next to the window looked over at me as I was kind of looking in his direction and said, uh, excuse me, sir, would you would you help, you know, and pass me my remote control so mm-hmm. put me bed up? And I said, not at all a problem. At which point you leant forward, pushed the curtain back. Now, having said that, I was concerned enough about mm-hmm. you pushing the curtain back, but you pushed the curtain back that was between the two beds, looked the guy in the eye and said, fuck off and get your own guests. <laughs> yeah, I did. Here we are, um, that was two weeks ago, wasn't it? It was 11 days. 11 days. Yeah. So, and you're now, you're now well, waiting to hear the histology yeah. of the Bob. Because, yeah. you know, I was disappointed as well, because he did promise everybody that once Bob was removed, you were going to have him placed <laughs> in a lava lamp. <laughs> well, it, um, I did ask. I did ask if I could keep it, and they said no. 
uh, and I was in no real fit state to go and... Well, that's a bit of a disgrace, because uh, uh, who are they to tell you not to... I mean, you spent time growing that bugger. Uh, I know, but I think, if, if we go back to... I think we just sort of got on, on a tangent. We were talking about this whole Facebook thing, yeah? Mm. Oh, don't worry, I'm bringing you back to that. <laughs> when... When... Um, before I, everything had gone uh, a little bit awry, I could have done anything I wanted in the world, yeah? But then all of a sudden, your world gets completely shrunken down to the size of a bed. That's it. That's your world. From the whole of the world to a bed. And quite frankly, the, the whole interaction thing on Facebook probably kept my sanity for those three or four days. And the amount of outpouring of genuine concern, of love and support from everywhere, from you know, around the world, there is nothing I could say and thank people enough for taking that time to do it. Now, one of the things that is coming as a byproduct of all this is when I'm better, I will be trying to look at how I can help people with who are going through a similar thing. And you know, there are people who are, are not interactive on social media. There are people who haven't got any bloody relatives. And to, go, to have gone through what I've just gone through on my own without anybody else would have been about the biggest nightmare that I could have possibly have imagined. And being a big gobby bastard as I am, I want to go out and help people who are going through that, unquestionably. So where's your mindset then? You know, you know you're not out of the woods. No. Because, I mean, we heard different opinions that, you know, Bob was removed, but Bob was not removed 100%. No. There's still, still bits that were stuck to the top of your lung. You know, they reckon they got 80 90% of it out. Yeah. And the histology bit, mate, now is uh, critical as to know what the next part of the yeah. thing is. So uh, uh, they had... Um, when, I, when I came round, obviously you know, the whole of uh, my chest has been opened up. Um, I made the fatal mistake only yesterday of looking at the, the operation on YouTube I will never do that again. Um, but, uh, although the, the cancer was pretty well self-contained, it had inveigled itself into different areas. Inveigled? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, is that a new word? I, I don't know, but I quite, I, like, I quite it. like it. Inveigled works for me. I know exactly what you mean. Yes. Yeah. But, um, but, for an example, it had wrapped itself around the, the, um, the phrenic nerve, which controls your diaphragm. So... Mm. You know, at the moment, I only have one lung that's working because that that because the diaphragm's cut. not working properly yeah. on the other side. Yeah, yeah. So I've got no, I've got a, basically a flappy um, right lung at the moment, which is not doing anything. Um, there are four definite, probably five broken ribs where they they opened up the chest. Obviously, I've got the uh, the pinning of the the sternum together, um, and probably about ten percent of the cancer left, which they couldn't you know realistically remove. So there will be a follow-up with radiotherapy, there will be a follow-up probably with chemotherapy, um, but once we know that, and that, that's my big concern at the moment as to what it is, because there are certain things which, if it is it, could be very problematical. So going forward then, he says trying to do an impromptu, hang on a second, this is going to this is gonna work, I don't know actually, I don't know if this is going to work for you or not, because I don't know if you've seen the film, um, yes. Here we go. So I want one of these. I tell you, it's going to be worth waiting for. Perhaps not. Um, 
I should have put my blooming glasses on, shouldn't I? There we go. Um, in that case, may the odds be in your favour. <laughs> it wasn't really worth waiting for, was it? It wasn't. No. Uh, so the odds, the odds are on your side now. Well, I, I think because before, again, you know, take t- the, the, the blag and the uh, out of the situation and, and all the prevarication and and whatever else. This thing was pushing on your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, every time your heart rate went up or you needed a, you know, additional blood to go around your body, it's been restricted by it. It was only a matter of time before you got an arrhythmia mm-hmm. or an arrest. So, you know, <laughs> quite, again, from what we understand and what you've said, that it, it probably wouldn't really, and I, I haven't said this to you now, it probably wouldn't have been the cancer that killed you. It would have been yeah. a heart attack. Yeah. And you'd have just dropped. And that would have been it. Yeah. Which, again, you know, I think there's a lot of luck it's happened to me, i.e. getting flu and them just picking up. Because you know, there was nothing wrong along, but you know, at least my doctor was savvy enough to, to send so me you, off. So you, you thought about and considered that possibility? That, that the effect of, you know, that it, it could be terminal, in, in not just in terms of months or whatever else, because the, when they first talked about what you possibly had, they suggested that people with the type of cancer that they thought you had only would last 12 months. Well, but I mean, most people didn't get that far because of because of the the arrhythmia yeah. that followed and and the, and the heart arrest. Well, I mean, they first said um, over to the hospital it was um, possibly um, a pericardium-based cancer. Yeah, which would have been a disaster, and it's one of the worst ones apparently. Yeah. Um, but that's only uh, caused by asbestos. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not ever worked with any asbestos. However, you know... You never know. It just needs one... It takes tiny fiber, yeah. yeah. So, you know, what I'm getting at is... You, did you think, you know, in, in terms of your mortality... I mean, you talked about shitting yourself going into, you know, the theatre. The, the truth is, right, the honest, honest gospel truth is... No, I didn't. Um, you just thought it'd be a, no a, point, a long journey that's going to, you yeah. know. At no point did I honestly think, although it crossed my mind, I th- thought I would die from this. Because the, whatever uh, this has thrown at me, there are obviously the, the Western medicine um, protocols. Yeah. And, and I've done an awful lot of reading and, a, and an awful lot of research in quite a small amount of time. But there are lots and lots of different options. And one of the things that sort of really uh, pissed me off is uh, I spoke to a doctor, not my normal doctor, um, for a follow-up call. And he said, well, what what are you doing? What are you uh, going on with? I said, well, I've given up smoking. He said, well done. I said, I've also changed my diet. He said, well, that's not going to make any difference. Now, the, the, the point is, when you start delving into this, your diet... Is, is an absolutely critical part of your defence mechanism against cancer. There's no question about it. And sadly, the the doctors, sadly the doctors are um, very unaware of this, it would appear. And I think there's a lot of indoctrination that comes from... Yeah, because, you, you know, before you went into this, like you said, you did, I suppose, what a lot of other people with, with serious conditions spent a lot of time reading around things and mm-hmm. you came across what somebody, some might 
described as whack job cures, you know, spiritualistic, holistic ways of dealing with it, and you changed your diet fundamentally, mm -hmm. and, and you lost a lot of weight very quickly. Yes. Um, was that helpful? I think at the time it certainly was. Well, because you had something to focus on, or...? Um, I think that there's a difference, Richard. I mean, as soon as I realised I was going to have to have surgery on this, I went back to a more, should we say, in inverted commas, normal diet. But I had lost a lot of weight, and I, I basically went on to a, a raw vegan-based diet and trying to turn my body very alkaline. Now, th that it provides a very nasty uh, environment for a cancer to thrive. Yeah, but it also it provides a nasty environment for your brain to operate as well, though, doesn't it? Um, I felt all right, but I felt very weak. But then yeah. as soon as I knew I had the op coming up, I needed to put some strength back in my yeah. mind, so I ate properly. As that's, as I... that's a lie. Because I know I, I was around when you broke the diet and protocol. Yeah. Around at your house with apple pie. Apple pie. Yeah. And we're not just talking, you know, standard apple pie. We're talking like, you know, three-inch depth, super delish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Which, you know, I, I think solves a multitude of problems. Mm -hmm. That provided you with a, a, a framework, or a, a, you know, to fight from, if you like, mm -hmm. A baseline to fight from, so but no, you, 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 you felt doing that, losing the weight, put you in a better place for the operation. I think what it did, it, it, it started my fight back in my mind. Yeah, I was actually doing something about it. I wasn't just sitting. So around. you drew, drew a line. You're not getting any worse. Yeah, even before you've had the, you know, the uh, the treatments and the, and the full assessment and the operation, yeah. you know, being scheduled. Okay, so take you back to post post-operation then you know you, you talked about how your outlook of the world has changed mm -hmm. now but um, at the moment as well you're feeling very vulnerable to uh, as, as a person uh, and very vulnerable to the outside world not just to ger germs and bugs but people in general mm -hmm. uh, and for somebody that's six foot whatever you are it must be a shock it's it was a, an enormous shock and I, I think again the benefit of hindsight will be a wonderful thing. Um, on Sunday was the first time I really went out, uh, and that was for our end of year grade. You know, I just wanted to put my head around the door and just you know, wish everybody a happy Christmas and, and to thank the guys who st stood up uh, and helped out science at the club. But the minute I got out of this house, um, I was absolutely petrified, partly because of picking up a, a, a bug, there's a lot of coughs and colds. You know, coughing now would absolutely kill me. There's no question of that. With busted ribs and broken sternum. Well, and plus your reduced lung capacity. Yeah, I mean, uh, the pain is, is ridiculous. I mean, I, I cough quite a lot because there's still residue of the anaesthetic in there, etc., etc. Um, and it's really weird. Sometimes when I eat, I can feel like phlegm building up. Mm. So I've got to get rid of it. Uh, and that is agony. And uh, one, one's sort of un... Um, uh, they, they give you a protocol to, when you're coughing. You have to clasp a pillow to your chest um, very tightly to stop the, everything moving. And um, I inadvertently coughed, it just came out. And it was four hours afterwards of absolute ridiculous amount of pain. Um, but to just go out the house and drive up the road, and every single car now has become the hugest threat in the world. You know, just that bump would, would be in, in agony. You know, someone bumping into you, someone you know, inadvertently giving you a bug, 
there's so many dangers out there which which I've never seen before. Now it started making me think as well about how people um, who are older, uh, sort of more elderly, infirm, disabled, go through life with these fears, which is something I've, I've never, since I was a sort of a small child, have felt that. Because this is where sometimes the old self-help bit industry falls down. Um, you've got bright lighthouses that have achieved some tremendous things, mm -hmm. extolling the majesty of taking on their fears and overcoming them. And it's very easy for them to do that. But like you say, if you have a vulnerability, you're not placed well to, to do that. It's almost, it's almost that the, the self-help view of the world is, is written for a small niche of people, mm -hmm. those that have the potential to, but which has which been quite an alarming revelation for you. It, it, an unbelievable revelation. And, and, and I think it's made me a lot more cognizant about the world I live in, but it, you know, I, I think even you know, going out shopping, you're know, holding a door open for somebody who's, who's struggling with, with a bag. You know, we do this as, as an interdependence in the community that we live in, and you know, it's something which is just good manners and you know, we've been brought up to do. But I, I think it goes an awful lot deeper, and I, I can't imagine how scared some people must be now. Mm. Which I've never thought of, to be honest. Yeah, the frailty, the frailty that comes with age, for example, yeah. or, or or with illness, but also the mental frailty that some people. Because again, you know, you're six foot whatever, you've played rugby all your life. It's 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 a revelation, as you say, that to contemplate yourself as as being vulnerable. I mean, mm -hmm. there are people out there that just being outside is is, is a scary experience to yeah. have an insight to do that. So. Having that insight as you've done, what does that change in your your way of thinking or, or method of doing things? I think it's still a work in progress, um, but I, I certainly know that when um, I'm better, I, I will be looking at ways that we can sort of engage with people again in a slightly different way to make their lives somewhat better. So whether it's, as you know, we've done a lot of work with people with mental health issues who, who have got uh, various sort of problems with uh, agoraphobia uh, and all sorts of stuff. I'm certainly, you know, from the martial arts perspective, um, want to get going and try and give those people some more confidence-boosting stuff that we can do. One of the things I want to do is work with people who are more elderly and give them some basic self-defence skills, which they probably never had, you know, and, and this will all be done on a voluntary basis. Uh, I, I feel very lucky, genuinely, to be alive. Um, as long as you know there's still a breath in my body, then I, I will fill that to to my dying breath. But I think we, we that's quite good, really. That's a good plan, really. As long as there's a breath in your body, you'll fit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that works really. Please don't lick my hat. <laughs> um, I point out that I'm not wearing the hat at the moment. None of this is audio. But the, the, there's a lot I think we can do for people who I, I didn't even realise almost existed, and. Is this going to change your, your mode of training then, your, your mode of teaching? I think you so. talk, you've talked about self-defence, you know. Um, is, is, there, is there a lesson in there that goes to more the, the soft skills that, you know, anybody that does do any training and, and self-defence should be more aware of the surroundings and the vulnerabilities of the people out there and 
take those vulnerabilities into account and support those people with vulnerability. I think so. But I, I think I think it goes even deeper. I mean, I remember having a lovely uh, walk with Hoist Gracie. And um, Hoist... You went for a walk with Hoist Gracie? Yeah. yeah. Um, around Kenilworth Castle. Oh, very right? nice, yeah. And um, Hoist was, was talking about his, his own fitness regime. Yeah. But one of the things that was very... Um, uh, noticeable that he was talking about on his website that they were introducing nutrition plans for people. Yeah, and he was saying that the the whole ideology of self defence, the very first stage is defence against the self, and we are probably more dangerous to ourselves than any mugger or rapist or murderer. Because the reality is, if you think about it, Coventry is not Beirut, although it's probably slightly higher. In, in assault and, and various crimes of uh, most cities of this size, we're still not looking at, at it being a very, very dangerous city, realistically. We can give people... No, nowhere near as dangerous as it has been in the past. Even. Yeah. So we, we would have, um, what, say roughly three and a half hundred to 400 students trained with us, yeah? Yeah. The, the reality is, on average, one student per year has been attacked. Now, I'm sure that the skills we've t- taken uh, for awareness and not being in that situation and giving people more confidence to walk away from stuff has negated those figures. There's no question in my mind, yeah? However, the reality is only one person per year on average has been attacked. Now, for me, I look at what people are doing with their lives, and uh, there's a few people who immediately come to mind with their diet and the way that they behave, and, and you know, myself without trying to be hypocritical, but was being a, a smoker for, for many, many years, I want to start addressing people's self-defence against themselves as part of what we do, which is very much a Dave Kovar-type attitude uh, from the States. And I think if we can help protect people from themselves, if you like, as well as the hard skills that we would teach, that's going to do far more benefit for people over the years. Now, what's been great is for the minute I gave up smoking, I think about 10 people at the club also have done the same and stuck to it. So that's wonderful. So there's been a positive outcome already from that. So it's almost a fundamental change to how martial arts and self-defence is perceived, isn't it? Because for a, a lot of clubs, the main USP, the selling point, is the world's a shitty place You've got to learn to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. But the statistics suggest that most people will go through their entire lives without any sort of altercation. 100%. Yet they're at risk, more risk from themselves than they are from. 100%. So, you know, you talked about nutrition. What what other? You you talked about addressing, you know, a different mindset as well. I, I think. One of the things that, that you know, you've been around martial arts for many years yourself, if you go to a good club and if you look at people like uh, Mick and Al at CSP as a perfect example, self, which is, yeah. who um, I, I know you're a big fan and advocate of. Yeah, they're yeah? very good, yeah. Look at the sort of people who go and attend their, their, their classes. Yeah. They're nice people. They are decent people, yeah. yeah. And when yeah. you go to, their, go to their club, what one thing that is overriding any any level of teaching that Mick Tully and Alan Peaslin put out is the welcome that you get from the students mm-hmm. there and you know, that that's that's even a bigger draw than the, than the knowledge mm-hmm. that they that they pass on 
So I, mean, I, I, I think that's one thing that's uh, a, a lot of people go to you know, stay at clubs for is, is that camaraderie. But that's that's exactly the point I'm going to make because you go into a place like that, it's a very supportive network. I would like to think that our club um, is exactly the same. You know, you, you train there, and it's a very welcoming and it's a very engaging sort of place with a lot of good positive people, most of whom you say, rightly, as with the CSP guys, will never have a fight in their lives. If you look at the whole essence of Jeet Kune Do, uh, as uh, speaking to Richard Basillo, Richard was always um, very strong in, in talking about Lee's um, belief that G JKD was never a style, JKD was about your own individual journey. And, and certainly, uh, you know, I, I've been coming up to teaching now professionally for 11 years, the more I've taught, the more I realise that I think the modicum of the success that we've had with, with our martial arts has been the fact that we recognise people are individuals. We're not all standing in lines, throwing out punches exactly the same. We're trying to recognise what is, is going to work for that particular person. That's important. And I think the same with this whole essence of um, health. I think everybody would have to be addressed in a slightly different way. You can almost go back then to that, that whole thing we were talking about, this whole, this whole um, Facebook thing, for example. I mean, a very dear friend of mine, Mikey Wright, um, phoned me up to see how I was a couple of days after the operation. And uh, in, in his own sort of unique style, he goes, God, if this was on Twitter, you'd be trending. You know, and it, it made me chuckle because, you know, for all the, the messages and stuff that we saw up on uh, my wall, I was probably getting double that amount coming through as private messages and texts. Mm. It, was, it was crazy. People who I'd never even vaguely heard of were saying, you're inspiring us, I've got cancer. All of a sudden, I can look at it from a slightly different way. And it was an incredible experience to see how much I've influenced and helped people who are going through bad times, or their family. Have. And vice versa. Yeah, so it becomes you know, a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy almost, doesn't it? So what, you, what you're saying then, um, the lesson out of the experience that you've got, one of the key ones is, is not to suffer alone, mm -hmm. is to you know, share and engage with people and for those people to share and engage with the, the, those that are suffering. Mm -hmm. because it's that feeling of isolation that amplifies the effects of the illness. I will give you a perfect example of this, a perfect example. And this was the, the, the weirdest one in, in, uh, in truth. I got a private message from a lady who had just had her brother arrested. Her bro and she sent me photographs of some of the damage over the years her brother has incurred into her. Basically, physically abusing her. To the point where on two occasions she felt she was going to die. And because of the pressure of her mum not to have him charged, and she couldn't move out of the house, she was absolutely petrified, she had um, literally gone to pieces. And her life was in tatters. She had been reading this over the last few weeks... Mm. And, and she wrote, she said, I can't thank you enough. Your attitude towards this has given me the strength to call the police this morning and he has just been taken away and arrested. Now, that has been going on for years. Yet, me just being honest about my feelings about going through this, this problem 
has helped someone immeasurably. And I've had several follow-up messages from her of saying, you know, he's now um, been um, charged. Um, it, it's all going through court. It's, he has restraining orders, etc., etc. Her life is now starting to build itself back up again. So out of this experience, then, you're extolling the message of engaging with people, talking, uh, you know, see, seeking people's help, sharing the messages of the things that you've learnt during that process and vice versa for people on the outside that aren't suffering to try and support those people that are going through it mm -hmm. and it becomes circular. And if you do that, it, it, it just results in positives all the way along. Yeah, but I think, I think you know, part of this process as well, Richard... Well, been... now, let me ask you a point-blank question okay. then. If, if, if that's the case then, that process, that sharing, and we're talking about sharing being cyclical... Uh, putting it out there and bringing it back in again that's helped physically and positively with your recovery undoubtedly and this is something that you're going to advocate that other people do without any doubt I think there is a, a part of that whole process as well has to be a blinding honesty uh, what I mean by that I, I would suggest if you if you took an average week since this has happened, yeah? 80% of the time, I've been pretty good and pretty positive and pretty upbeat and, and dealing with it fairly well. Another 10% of the time, I'm sort of okay, but a little bit down in the dumps, yeah? And as I put up there, there have been days where I've struggled like fuck just to, to do anything. And I've been, you know, in, in floods of tears with this. Now... That's okay. Yeah, and I put that up. No, is that okay? Yeah, 100%. Okay. 100%, because there was, there was one time, day last week, I was in absolute agony. I think it was actually the day of the unexpedited cough. And I'd gone up to bed, and I was in absolute agony. I couldn't get comfortable, I couldn't get sleepy. I was in, in paroxysms of pain, and everything then started magnifying itself. And I put a little thing out on Facebook... Come on, guys, give me, give me some energy, yeah. give me some feedback. And literally, there was 200 messages within an hour, I would suggest, of people you know, sending little bon mots, little, little jokes, little captions, genuine concern, genuine energy. And you know, there, there are people who um, are, are Reiki healers who I know who are sending energy, and just that collective energy. And I swear to God, man, in the morning when I woke up, I felt on top of the world and it was because of that experience and the other part of what we've just been talking about this evening is one of the important things if you are going to do martial arts or self-defense or you know any sort of training really you've got to take care of the self first Cursed. because if you don't take care of the self you can't serve anybody else and it's yep. the serving of the other people that is where the good stuff is. I think so, yeah. Whether it be your, you know, your family, whether it be, you know, through work, whether it be, but you've got to take care of the self first. Mm -hmm. And it's an honest appraisal of what you need to do with the self. So whether it be food, whether it be um, addressing a fear, whether it be, you know, developing your, yourself educationally, whether it be just, you know, being half full rather than half empty. That's the other thing that you've, you, you've got out of the experience so far. Again, without a doubt. And I think, 
you know, we talk about this sort of PMA, positive mental attitude thing. You have two choices when you, you're, you're faced with this. You can either sit back and let it beat you, or you can beat it. There's very little other choices. You look at that lad, Stephen... I can't remember yeah, the, 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 I know who you mean, who, yeah. who um, wrote a bucket list and raised you know, right. a number of millions on That's Facebook. Right. The, the, the lad from the Midlands, so yeah, I did to discredit his memory, really, for not remembering yeah. his surname. But uh, yeah, I know... I just remember his smile, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, and his, his, his thumbs up while pulling his oxygen right. max to one side in his hospital bed um, yeah. a day or so before he died, yeah. Now, he, he epitomised everything which you could possibly see would be good about making a positive come out of something like this. And that, that gave me a lot of strength, to, to be honest. Um, but I've, I've always been a fairly positive person, I think. And I think you've just got to continue that into to this because I could either sit down here and just mo be moody and, and be broken with this, or I can take it. Um, uh, uh, let's just sort of turn that around a little bit. When I had my DVT, which was now 12 years ago, I believe, I nearly died. Now, a deep vein thrombosis is a very deadly thing. A pulmonary embolism, which it then transposed into, is also a very deadly thing. So, not great news. That experience made me into a far better person than I was before that. So, that whole thing as well, is it, 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 that the, the worst thing that's ever happened to me, or is it the best thing? We'll only know with the benefit of hindsight. And as far as this cancer goes as well, is it going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to me? Or is it going to be the best thing that's ever happened to me? Now, frankly, I honestly believe it to be one of the best things that's happened to me. It's going to make me completely reevaluate again who I am, what I stand for, and I think it will make me a better person. And that's, that's a pretty powerful piece of juju, to be honest. Thank you very much. My pleasure, sir.